So sometimes the question is asked, what kind of literature we're reading when we open up Genesis 2 and 3? And I think of all of the different descriptive phrases to describe what we just read, the best one, I think, is archetypal literature. And what we mean by archetypal literature, an archetype is the first of its kind. And what we're learning about here are the first humans so that we can learn about all humans. In other words, Genesis 2 and 3, this story, is our story. In this story that is so rich in metaphor, it is so latent with meaning. I mean, every phrase says something. Every image, every metaphor is so evocative. In this story, we find a rich and a robust and a remarkable anthropology. In other words, we learn something about what it means to be human. And so what I want to do to begin is I want to note five things, five observations from this story about what it means to be human. You know, it was Albert Camus who said, everything has been figured out, you know, in this technological age. Everything has been figured out except how to live. And I don't know if anyone in the house feels like you need a little direction on what life is about and how to live it well. Well, this text gives it to us. It tells us this remarkable kind of vision of what it means to be human. And there's five things I want to draw to your attention, but I really want to bank on the fifth one. So we'll just be quick in ticking off the first four, and then we're going to drill down on the fifth. So number one, what we learned from this story is that we were made for God. You know, it says that there was a tree of life in the middle of the garden. And we talk a lot about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that's what the rest of the story is about but a little bit later in the Bible, we learn more about this tree of life in Revelation 2 and 7. And the author of Revelation understands this to be a symbol, a metaphor for life with God, fellowship with God. Or put it like this, the infinite and eternal community of love that we name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that infinite ocean of being and beauty and love who called all things into being invites us to know our life as we come to know him. Or as Jesus said, this is eternal life that you might know God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so number one, what does it mean for us to be human? Number one, to be human, it means to be in relationship with God. We were made for God. But secondly, we were not just made for God, we were made for community, for vulnerable, intimate relationships of trust. And that's why even in the midst of creation, which God declares is very good, he said there was one thing that was not good. It was not good for the human to be alone. And so he makes a partner suitable for the human. And this is our need. We need to live in rich and vibrant and vulnerable community in relationships of trust and love. So number two, we were not just made for God. We were made for community, for each other, for relationship. But number three, the text reveals that we were also made for work, for creative vocation and work in this world. You know, it was Dorothy Sayers who said that work she defined as the gracious expression of energy in the service of others. Isn't that a great definition of work? The gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. And what was the man and woman doing in the garden? They were put there to work it and to keep it. And what do you do when you garden? You create beauty from the chaos, and then you take the fruit and you 
use it to bless and serve and feed other people. In other words, you're creating and you're contributing. And this is what we were made for, is creation and contribution. And so we were not only made for God and we were not only made for each other, we were also made for vocation. But finally in this text, we discover that we were made for joy. You know the word Eden, it says they were placed in the Garden of Eden. That word Eden means delight. In other words, we were made to experience delight and joy in God's world. You know, a lot of uh, ink has been spilled on the tree of prohibition. But if you notice in the text that we just read, what is more profound than the tree of prohibition is the permission that God gives to eat of all of the trees of the garden. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking about how amazing it would be if somebody gave me a credit card with an unlimited line of credit and said, you may eat of any restaurant you want in Pasadena. That's like my dream. I would just love that. So if anyone here wants to do that, and just morning, noon, and evening, go to any restaurant, order whatever I want as sheer gift. This is the beginning God says, you can eat of any, I'm giving it all to you. This isn't, these aren't trees of your own making. These are gift and grace, and it's for you to enjoy and to delight in and to celebrate. And so you were made for joy. You were made for creative work. You were made for relationship. You were made for God. But fifthly and finally, and this is the one we're going to bank on. This is the one I want to drill down on. And this is the most controversial one and the one that is singularly most challenged in our current culture. You were also made to live under the authority of God. Or put it like this, you are a creation and you were made to live within the boundaries of the creator who called your existence into being and upholds you. So we were made to live underneath God's authority. You know, it was uh, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann who pointed out that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you know, we, we agonize over what was the fruit on the tree? What was, he says, the tree is incidental. The point is the command. The tree is symbolic of God's authority that he exercises in his world. He defines the boundaries of our life. And so what it means to be fully human, how we live into a life of human flourishing is yes, to be in relationship with God. Yes, to engage in creative work, yes, to engage in relationship, yes, to delight and enjoy in God's world. Um, but we were also made to live underneath the authority and the rule of God. And question, how does God's rule and authority come to us? How is God's authority mediated in our lives? Well, in the text, it is through God's word of command. And this is how God's authority is exercised in the church and in our lives. It is through his word that comes to us in the scriptures. The scriptures carry the authority of God and we were created to live with a disciplined submission and an honor and a trusting obedience to the authority and the commands of God given to us in his word. Now again, there is no aspect of the Christian vision of what it means to be human that is more contested in 21st century America than this claim, right? I was uh, on my way to the airport on Thursday and I caught an Uber and I was getting to know my Uber driver as I do. And he was an immigrant from the Philippines. He had this little bobble hula on the hood and uh, he was listening to country music 
I don't like country music. But I asked him what he did, if this was all he did was Ubering, and he said, no, he actually worked graveyard shift at the Four Seasons Hotel cleaning rooms. He said he had been doing that for 24 years. And I asked him, how do you like working graveyard? He said, it's great. I've been doing this for 24 years, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm up all night. In fact, he says, on Wednesday nights, I don't sleep at all. And then on Thursday, uh, I go right to work for Ubering. And I was looking at my watch, and I was like, this guy hasn't slept in 30 hours, and he's driving me in a car, you know? But I said, I, I said, how do you like it? He said, I love my job. I've been doing it for 24 years. And I'm like, cleaning rooms, graveyard shift, why? He said, it's awesome. For four hours, I work hard. Four hours, it's a little more mellow. I put my headphones on. I listen to music. I dance while I clean. And then he said this, there is no manager there who can tell me what to do. It's the same thing that the staff said this week when I was gone in Hawaii. But that captures, I think, the spirit of our age. We inhabit a culture, we live in bodies with hearts and minds that have an allergic reaction to authority. I was reading a book on the plane by a guy named Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he, he, he mapped out kind of a history of, like a cultural history in three parts. And he described kind of the, the history of cultures in the West uh, using this metaphor of three different worlds. He talked about the first, second, and third worlds. Now don't confuse that with the third world kind of being developing world, that's not what he's talking about. But he said in the first world, he said it was the ancients. And this was a world where they were governed by a sacred order, by the mythology and the gods. And that sacred order defined life within the social order and gave direction to individuals. And, the, the, and, and it was governed, it was externally imposed upon them from without. And so it was the fates, it was fate that sort of governed that first world. And then he said in the second world, there was a transition from fate kind of being the thing that governed the social order to in mostly kind of the Christian and Jewish period, uh, the sacred order being faith that governed the social order. And so it, were, it was ancient sacred texts like the Bible, uh, sacred religious leaders like priests and popes and, and churches and cathedrals that instantiated an authority over social life and governed social life. But then he said, in the modern and late modern world, we've entered into a new world where now the, the idea that there is a sacred order that is transcendent, that externally imposes an order on life from outside has been erased. And one of the things that it means to inhabit the world we live in right now is to live in a world that has done away with the sacred order and now what's left to govern the self is the self. Now think of the language we hear on a regular basis. Speak your truth, you know? Be true to yourself. You do you. You know, and, and I think what we don't realize, unless you capture some of the, the, the history here, is that these are remnants of, of living in, into a post-Freudian world. You know, some of you might have some familiarity with Freud. I was reading about this in this book. But he, he was pointing out that for Freud, all neurosis was the result of repression of desire from within 
or was the result of oppression of desire from without. The oppression that was brought by those structures of church or state or whatever. And that the, that the result of that was that we were repressed and oppressed and so our desires have been shoved down and now we are unhappy. And so what is the solution to the problem of repression from within or oppression from without? Well, for, for Freud, it was be true to yourself. Choice is the prime value. You be you, you do you, I'll be me. Be authentic, be true to yourself. And the only sin that is to be tolerated in this new age is the sin of intolerance of other choices that people make for themselves. Do your own thing, who am I to judge? Does this sound familiar at all to you? This is kind of the cultural melu in which we all swim. And so, you know, you get to Foucault. This is again from this book, I'm no Foucaultian expert. But he said for Foucault, you know, he interpreted all structures in the past as being inherently violent and oppressive, period. Everything was a power game intended to oppress and destroy human life. And so even the idea of truth was a power play. So where you're, what you're left with is not the quest for the good and the true and the beautiful. Instead, what you're left with is a quest for individual pleasure and the fulfillment of your own personal des desires, unencumbered and unhindered by any kind of sacred order from without. And so in our world, the idea of living by authority, especially biblical authority, you know, this collection of ancient writings composed some two to 3,500 years ago, written by a variety of different people in different contexts and places who are long dead. The idea that this should govern our lives in the 21st century, that it should guide our sense of right and wrong rather than our own inner desires and intuitions just sounds wrong for many of us or even to some dangerous. That just sounds like a dangerous idea. But what I want you to see in the text is we are not the first culture, we are not the first people that have challenged the idea of a sacred authority. That work goes all the way back in the garden. You notice in the text, there's a snake in the garden. There's always a snake in the garden, isn't there? There's always an alternate voice that's challenging the voice and the word of God. Look what it says in Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now I want you to notice the devil here, the serpent takes two tracks to challenge the authority of God. These two tracks have proven useful for the serpent throughout human history. Track one is he expands the commands of God. We could call this the religious track. He takes the command of God, which was singular. You shall not eat of one tree. And he said, did God say that you can't eat of any of the trees? And do you see what he's doing? He's making the command and the rule and the authority of God to be an onerous, joy-killing, joy-sucking thing. This is often the work of religion. Now, I want you to notice the woman responds well. She corrects the serpent. 
as we should correct you know, those voices that expand God's word and his will in ways that kill and destroy life as God intended it to be. She quotes the Bible back to the serpent. She says, no, actually what God said was, we can't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. We can eat of all the other trees. Well, so the devil tries a different track, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And also she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What is he doing now? He moves from exaggerating and expanding the command of God to appealing to the woman's desire and herself and leading her in disobedience down that track. And there's two things, though, I want you to observe about this. Number one is that the end that she puts forward or that the servant puts forward is in some ways a good end. Because notice what he says. He says, you will be like God. Now, it's interesting, in chapter one, the Bible says that God created the human creatures in God's image and after God's likeness. To be like God is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. There's a, there's a sense in which there is a deep longing inside of us to be people of substance and significance and character and goodness. And there's a real sense in which the end of the entire plan of redemption of God is to ultimately conform us and shape us and mold us and to be people of substance and character and goodness and holiness, to be like Christ, to be imitators of God. This is a good end. In fact, um, I would say that most human beings have this latent, sometimes it's covered up by more base desires, but almost all of us have some deep desire for significance and substance, don't we? I mean, that's why at a memorial service, I've done a lot of memorial services. I've never had anybody come up at a memorial service and say, Let's all just remember Charlie, you know, all the times he got completely wasted and how he vomited all over the place and he was a meth addict and isn't that awesome and, and uh, you know, he was on tender so much and he, you know, like, you don't do that. What do you celebrate? What do you want to honor? You want to honor a person's character and their virtue. They gave themselves away. They were generous and they were kind. And what is that? That's a human longing to actually be people of generosity and goodness and substance and love and character. And so there's a sense in which the, the serpent is appealing to, in some ways, what could be a good end. You could be like God, knowing good from evil. The problem is not the end. The problem here are the means. You can be like, you can get what you want. You can become the kind of person you want you can be who you want to be only if you throw off the shackles of these external, oppressive, God-given authority and rule. And it's interesting here, there are really two paths in this whole 
large section that we just read, into being a person of character and virtue. Path number one is a pathway that involves submission and trust and humility to something bigger than yourselves, to God's wisdom. And as you submit to that, and as you conform your life in a disciplined way to his authority, over time, through a long obedience in the same direction, you are transformed into a person of substance and character and significance. And the other version is, if you give into your own desires, if you just exploit and you operate under the governance, not of God, but under your own desires, then you can enter into becoming a person of significance and greatness. And I was thinking about these two different tracks, and I don't know why. It reminded me of Star Wars. Because I, I think that the, the original series and the most recent trilogy are quite different in how they understand the idea of the force. And so you remember back in the original trilogy, how is it that you become a Jedi master? Well, Luke had to go to the, Deb De the Dagobah system and learn from, Jed from, from Yoda, right? And he had to submit himself to the discipline of training, and he had to have humility. And he wasn't just gonna get and master the force like that, it would take time, and, and he shouldn't go back and go save his friends on the cloud system, right? He should stay with Yoda and complete his training. But then in the new series, the, the idea of the force shifts. And when you encounter Rey, she's like, she's like a Jedi master before she even knows it. And you're kind of like, how did she all of a sudden become more powerful than the well-trained Luke Skywalker? And it's like the force is just something that she expresses from within. And then when she goes away to get training, she discovers that Luke has become utterly cynical. Luke has burned down the tradition. He's burned the books. He's given away. He says, the whole thing is a sham. You just need to go and be yourself, Ray. <laughs> and there's a sense in which those are two different models, two different visions of how we become fully significant humans and people of character. One is by discipline, submission, and obedience, and trust in God and his rule and authority, or by casting that off and just seeking everyone to affirm our desires just as they are. Listen, you guys need to listen. There is a problem with that. There's a big problem with simply wanting to affirm your desires as you are. And the problem is that your desires are conflicted, aren't they? I mean, you go into uh, Whole Foods and I might walk up to uh, check out and I look over and there's a men's magazine with uh, a dude with rock hard abs. And I look over at that, and I might think, I want that, that's a desire. I want those rock hard abs. And then you look at the next magazine next to it and it's like this big dessert magazine with all this beautiful thing. And I think, I want that, you know? But you can't have both. Your desires are oftentimes in conflict with each other. And of course, your desires are easily exploited and they're manipulated. You know, I was thinking about the guy who was celebrating the fact that his, the man wasn't there to tell him what to do all night long, that in some sense he was lying to himself because his whole job was ordered by the man. He just pretended while he danced that he actually wasn't in the control of someone else. And listen, as you are, like the algorithms know you. 
They got your number and they're exploiting your fears and your angers and the things you want and they're growing those things and they're enslaving those things. Your desires, they, they, they can be easily exploited and manipulated and your desires can sometimes take you in the wrong direction. You know, I don't know how many of you guys remember the Pirates of the Caribbean. Remember Captain Jack Sparrow had a broken compass? And do you remember where the compass would lead him? It was what he wanted the most. And oftentimes our hearts are like a broken compass. Is they're constantly leading us in things we want the most at a surface level, but what you want the most is sometimes actually destructive to you. And sometimes your desires themselves can become enslaved and entrapped and it just puts you in destructive places. And so I just wanna say, like, this path of self-discovery is not the way into becoming a human of character and virtue and substance and goodness. That's a path that we walk underneath the rule and the authority of God and his good rule in our lives. Now, let me just get practical. If we are gonna become people who submit to God's authority in our lives, what might that take and what might it look like? Number one, if you're gonna become a person who does submit to the authority of God, then number one, it's gonna require study. It's gonna require study. And it's gonna require study because oftentimes discerning how God's word exercises authority in our lives is not always clear. Sometimes it's funny. See, I mean, this is an ancient collection, as we pointed out many times, of diverse writings. There's poems, and there's ancient law codes, and there's crazy stories like, that are found in the book of Judges that are dark and violent. You're like, how is this supposed to govern my life? I don't know. You know? So it requires reflection and thought and meditation and study, and you've got to pay attention to other voices, and you've got to go back and listen to a couple of the other sermons that I preached on how to read the Bible well. So that's homework for this week. Study... But, you know, it does require thought and reflection because you come to texts like, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 22 that says this, do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. And you think, well, what does it look like for me to sit underneath that authority in my life? And it requires some reflection and thought. Where does that fit in the larger unfolding plan of God and so on and so forth? Or a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul commands women to pray and prophesy with their heads covered. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, it requires thought and reflection. And so number one, if we're gonna live underneath the authority of God, we need to study and we need to read and we need to reflect on and we need to learn from this collection of writings. There is wisdom here to be found about how to connect with God and how to live well. But number, number two, we not only need study, secondly, we need courage. You know, sometimes the Bible is difficult because it's hard to understand. But sometimes the Bible is difficult because, not because it's hard to understand, but because the meaning is quite clear, we just don't like what it says, right? And so take, for instance, Matthew 5, 39 to 42. Jesus said, if anyone would sue you and take your cloak, give it to him, you know? And Jesus says things like, give to the one who begs from you. 
And we think, really? <laughs> you know? And, and these words are obscure, not because the literal meaning is unclear, it's just we simply cannot imagine obeying it. You know, do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. We think, ever? You know? I wonder what it says in the Greek, you know? Give to the one who sues you and takes your cloak. And we think, what does the scholar say, you know? Is this a metaphorical cloak, you know? I sure hope so. You know, do we avoid the Bible because it's hard to understand or because it's easy to understand? We just don't like what it says. So Ren Kierkegaard put it like this. He said, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get by in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible. <laughs> to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Now, of course, what he's saying there is tongue-in-cheek. And of course, we actually do need good Christian scholarship. We do need to read the Bible carefully. There are parts that are very difficult to understand. But the point that he's making is clear. There's a whole lot that isn't obscure, that ought to govern our lives, and we need to pay attention to that. But to do that, we need moral and theological courage. And so we not only need study, we also need courage. But thirdly and finally, we also need trust. You know, my, my kids are older now, but when they were younger, when they're three, four, five years old, you tell them to do something, and sometimes they ask, why should I do that? And you answer in those moments, because your mommy or your daddy said so. They can't understand the full explanation. They don't understand all of your reasoning, why you have for doing what you do. They can't get it. But you want them to trust you because your parent knows better than a three or four-year-old. Amen? A parent knows better than a 13 or 14-year-old. Amen? A parent knows better than a 17 or 18-year-old. Amen? Come on. <laughs> Preach it. And of course, there are many things you don't know how to do it. And so what do you do? You go onto YouTube and you find out how to do that little project because someone there knows how to do it better than you know how to do it. You apprentice yourself to somebody who's better than you at what you're doing, and that's how you learn. But you've got to trust them. You've got to have humility. You've got to have submission. You know, if you think about, um, you know, um, any number of expertise you want to develop, you never get there unless you apprentice yourself to a master, somebody who gets it better than you do. I was reading a book a while back called Stumbling Onto Happiness by a Harvard psychologist whose name was Daniel Gilbert. And he was writing about the psychology of happy. And one of the things that he said that was surprising to me, he said, do you want to be happy? 
Do you wanna know whether or not that vacation you're gonna take is gonna make you happy? That car you're gonna buy is gonna make you happy? That new pair of shoes you want is gonna make you happy? He says the best way to determine what will make you happy, he says it's not to consult your own desires because they are notoriously deceptive and they keep getting it wrong. He said, we are often the worst people to determine what will make us happy. But he said, the way you can grow into happy, the way you can know whether or not that thing will make you happy is to talk to somebody who's done it and ask them, how did it make you feel? What do you experience now? And I'll just say, go to Maui. It's good, it'll make you happy. Um, Maybe it won't, I don't know. But, but you're asking somebody who knows something you don't know and you have to trust them. And this is what it requires with the, own, with the way of life that we are invited into practice and to embody in this world that's given to us through Jesus and the Sermon on the Mountain and, and the ethical teachings in the New Testament. We are, this way of life, we have to trust ourselves that this is the best way to live. It's better to seek reconciliation than to hold on to grievances. It's better for your soul to forgive than to grow deep with bitterness. It's better actually to treat the opposite sex like human beings of value and worth than to objectify them and to become enslaved to images of objectification. It's, it's, it's far better to love your enemies than to hate them and to bomb them. Like, we have to trust ourselves that Jesus knows a better way of life than us, and when we submit ourselves to his way, that over time, through a long course of obedience in the same direction and disciplined fidelity will be shaped and formed in people of character and substance. Do you want that? Do you want to be a person of substance and character? You don't get there by watching more Netflix all the time and watching more YouTube clips and giving in to your own desires and staring at this thing all day long. Like it just isn't, it doesn't take you to be a person of character and significance. Our culture is notoriously bad at creating people who have deep inner peace, but great at creating people who are incredibly anxious. It's terrible at creating people who have a deep sense of security in who they are because they're loved and great at developing people who are insecure and fearful and angry. And so we have got to submit ourselves to a way of life that Jesus is offering us to if we want to actually grow into people of substance and significance and character. I'll end with this. You know, when I was uh, driving, Alicia and I were, were driving around the island of Maui, we were listening frequently to Moana soundtrack. You're like, oh, did you have the kids with you? No, we were just listening to Moana, because that's what you listen to. We were listening to Israel, uh, I can't remember his last name, but you know Izzy, the big Hawaiian, like, it's awesome, and Moana. Even after Alicia left, when I was driving around by myself, I was listening to Moana, because I love Moana. Yeah? Yes. Um, but there's this great scene in the movie Moana where Moana tra traverses across the great oceans to go meet TK, 
who is this uh, goddess or whatever that is, it's this bubbling volcanic, like there's all this molten lava and it's becoming embodied in this like terrifying, like monstrous looking person. Are you guys with me on this? And, um, and she traverses the island find this person. And I just thought it is such a good picture of our own humanity when we are just caving to our immediate basis desires like molten lava stirring up that sometimes erupts and spills out and hurts somebody else around us. And this pile of molten lava that's kind of instantiated in this person is transformed into a mass of land that becomes a fertile, beautiful island. And the transition comes when the molten lava bows down, as it were, in front of Moana in humility and submission. And Moana says, I have crossed the waters to find you, to tell you this does not define you. This is not who you are. You are not defined by all of your worst impulses that are going on inside of you. There is something better and more beautiful kind of humanity that God has for you but it comes when you surrender your heart and your life to the one who has not just crossed the ocean, but the one who has traversed the cosmos to enter into humanity, namely Jesus, who has come to be the true mediator of God's authority and God's will in our life, and ultimately to use his own power and authority to rescue us from sin and death and darkness. You can trust in the love and in the power of God that he knows what's best for you and you can surrender to this good authority. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we confess that all of us have a conflicted mess of desires going on below the surface in our hearts and lives. We are insecure and we just want to be loved. We're angry and we want revenge. We're unforgiving and we want to see them hurt. God, we want the best for children or siblings or spouses or parents. God, we are a conflicted mess of desires and we know below the surface of them all is something that comes to us because we are made in your image. God, you have made us to ultimately be people of substance and character in this world. And you've rescued us through your son, Jesus, not so that we can simply be forgiven, but so that we could be formed and shaped into being people of character. And I pray, oh God, that you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit to desire what you desire for our lives. God, give us strength to walk a path of disciplined submission and fidelity to your commands, to your promises, to your word. And so shape and mold us to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.